The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. Alright guys, welcome to another episode of The Anchor Point, episode number four. Just want to give a quick shout out to you guys that have been uh, telling your friends, sharing our podcast, shouting us out on the social media. Really appreciate it guys, keep doing what you're doing. I've also been getting a lot of questions, specifically questions about the international community and how they do business, how they fight fire, fuels, weather, topography, terrain, all that shit. Well, lucky for you, today on the show I got my good buddy Jack. He's a uh, search and rescue guy out of Melbourne, Australia, in the great state of Victoria. And uh, when he's not doing his search and rescue stuff, he is a volunteer firefighter. He's a 10-year veteran of the volunteer firefighting program in Australia. And uh, yeah, so when he's not doing the search and rescue stuff, he is pretty much on call all the time. He's fought a lot of fire. He's done a lot of search and rescue. And uh, today on the show, he's going to answer all those questions that you guys have about how they do business over in Australia. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Anchor Point. ziplining that was so much fun oh <laughs> uh, yeah i was definitely doing that again like sooner rather than later yeah dude that was fun yeah uh what was that place called man uh and i uh I forget. I forget. Livewire park yeah livewire dude the livewire park the great state of melbourne or sorry victoria <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. anyways you want to do this man you ready All right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Anchor Point, the Anchor Point podcast. Today on the show, I got Jack Fry. He's a uh, volunteer firefighter. He's a little bit north of Melbourne. And, uh, well, I hope to God that you guys know where Melbourne is because it's all the way across the world. Hey, Jack, what time is it over there? Is it like 10 o'clock at night for you? Uh, it is zero, zero, three, seven hours in the morning. Oh, it's super late. So there you go. So literally, he's time traveling to be on this show, and it's super late at night, and it's super early over here in the morning in America. But yeah, he is a volunteer firefighter, and well, let's be honest, shit's a little bit different uh, down in the Southern Hemisphere. Jack, introduce yourself, man. Yeah, good day, everyone. So I'm Jack, as, uh, as Brandon said. Uh, I've been a volunteer firefighter for 10 years. I started in the township that I grew up in when I was 16. And uh, I've since moved away and, and moved to a different uh, brigade and been with them for almost three years. So uh, I've got a few summers under my belt and uh, wildland firefighting is new to me. Um, and I'm hoping to, to help you all understand 
uh, how it's a little bit different, but very, very much similar. Oh, yeah. So when I was down there, we were hanging out, <clears throat> went down there. I was down there for uh, my wife and I were down there for my our honeymoon. And uh, we ran into you for, what, two days? We went and cruised up the Great Ocean Road, went to the Great Otway, went zip lining uh, with you and your girlfriend. And, dude, that it was awesome. But it reminded me a lot yeah. of it reminded me a lot of uh, Southern California. So, is that where you want to start? I mean, like, like give us like a little topography lesson, little uh, history lesson, or uh, not history lesson, but fuel topography, you know, weather conditions, stuff like that. Let's talk about that in uh, the great state of Victoria. There. Sure. Okay. So the the best analogy I can provide for Victoria's weather is Southern California, as you've said. Um, so. We have uh, massive areas of national forest, which is mostly composed of eucalypts and gum trees, um, which Californians would be very familiar with as being uh, one of the most flammable trees on the planet. <laughs> um, and Victoria itself is, is one of the most fire-prone places in the world, purely because we have a massive, massive quantity of, of these trees. Our topography inland is relatively flat, um, but you can draw a line that runs from the, uh, the west, southwestern corner of the state running to the northeastern corner of the state that, that forms a, a mountainous range that's called Brisbane Ranges and the Great Dividing Range, which runs all the way along the eastern coast of Australia. Um, as far as wind goes, a lot of our winds are driven by hot northerly winds coming in land from the desert, um, and then they're also driven by cool coastally southern winds uh, coming in from, from the ocean, the Bass Strait, uh, to our south. And one of the biggest challenges that we face is that our topography combined with those winds and the fuel loading means that we end up with these massive areas of land that burn very, very intensely that we just don't access. We can't get to them. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're hand crew or you're on a truck or you're in a, a helicopter. You really uh, struggle to get effective firefighting in these places. Well, when I was down there, one thing that I definitely noticed was um, that it goes from gentle rolling hills to pretty mountainous little areas. I mean, it's not like tall per se, but it's just, it's steep. It's steeper than shit over there. Like, uh, and right. the other challenge that I definitely see is uh, definitely the fuel loading. Like, I was blown away by the compactiveness and density of your fuels. It's pretty much a yeah. eucalyptus jungle. It's crazy, man. And you're right. You're absolutely right. It is, <clears throat> it is crazy. And, and that's, there's a lot of reasons for that. The main one being that uh, burns, prescribed burning and controlled burning isn't occurring at the rate it needs to for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, some of it's bureaucracy, some of it's mental, uh, you know, how people perceive the burn. Some of it's just organizational. It's just there isn't money in a budget or there isn't manpower to do it or there isn't a break in the weather because this time of year when we do our burning, just the weather can be so hit for tat. Yesterday it was 21 degrees and grass fires were running perfectly fine and happy and four hours ago it was bucketing down with rain and you couldn't lit a fire on a match undercover if you wanted to. It was so wet. So um, Now is that 21 that, degrees that Fahrenheit? Is that like 21 degrees Fahrenheit or is that 21 degrees uh, Celsius? That's 21 degrees Celsius. Now, I don't have the, uh, the conversion to that off the top 
top of my head. Well, but let's uh, go to Google. <laughs> I think twenty like fifty-seven Fahrenheit or something like that. Sixty-seven, you said. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's about right. Uh, let's see here to the Google. Let's see. You said 27, 27 degrees Celsius to twenty-one see, Celsius to Fahrenheit. Twenty-one is sixty-nine point eight Fahrenheit. There we go. So it's relatively Sorry. cool, humid, moist, you know, and you're still getting some pretty good fire humidity. behavior out of it. Yeah, I'd say humidity is sort of in the, you know, the 70%, like, you know, a little bit cold, the air's a bit moist, but it's not that 100% humidity where you're breathing the air, you're like, holy shit, I, I can't breathe too thick. Um, yeah, so so that those challenges all put together mean that we've got these massive fuel loadings all across the state, you know, in, in an area to the northwest of my hometown. Um, there's fuel loadings in the 18 ton uh, hectare. Um, now, for those playing, <laughs> uh oh, hectare. Hectare What's a hectare? Is, uh, a hectare is 4,000, uh, sorry, correction, is 2.472 acres. 2.72? Acres. 2.472 2. Okay. acres. So, uh, for every two acres, there's 18 tons of fuel. Uh, ready to burn at all layers in in the forest. So that's that's the ground fuels, the mid level fuels, and the top fuels. And uh, it's just primed to burn because that's what the bush does. That's what fire in Australia is. It's it's just primed to burn because it's ecologically necessary and environmentally necessary. But um, you know, it's this constant. It, you know, each year we're looking at it. We're going shit. There's 18 tons. There's 19 tons. There's 20 tons. This when this goes off. There's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, you guys basically have to go either super indirect or just hope it runs into a big ass road or something like that, some sort of natural fuel break. And That's right. Just basically hope it goes, or goes we'll, out. We'll get our aviation assets in and, and we'll bomb the hell out of it from the air. We'll put retarded lines in, um, dozer trails, hand tool crews will get in um, and just try and, and really stop that forward rate of spread. But if it gets into canopy, you know, it just jumps those brakes. It doesn't. It doesn't care at all. It'll just keep going. Um, as as many of the guys listening, the guys and girls listening, know, um, it, it can sometimes just run no matter what you've done. So that's crazy. So you guys are fighting, you know, pretty much Southern California conditions. So you guys got real dense eucalyptus forests, a lot of chaparral. And you guys are fighting also yeah. those, uh, not diameter winds, but the phone, we call them phone winds. So like a, almost like a Santa Ana wind kind of thing. Yeah. So, so we have these, these predictable recurring wind conditions that, that drive from Southwest. You, the whole state can predict when the wind change is going to come through. It's so regular that normally you go, ah, oh, about five or six o'clock tonight, we're going to get the wind change. And when we do, our Eastern flank is going to become our biggest issue. Gotcha. So you guys have a pretty, pretty stable, you guys know, well, stable, not stable by per se, but you guys have a pretty predictable weather pattern down there. You guys pretty much for the most part know yeah, what it's going to do. Absolutely. So it, you know, the change might come a little bit earlier, a little bit later, and it might be a little bit stronger, or a little bit weaker than it was two days ago or yesterday or tomorrow, but it's reasonably consistent and predictable, which is advantageous. Yeah, I wish I uh, I wish I had an idea what the uh, weather was going to be doing here, <laughs> but uh, 
But uh, I don't know. For the most part here in my area, we get a Zephyr, Zephyr winds. So about two o'clock every day in the summer, we get a very strong southwesterly flow. So yeah, pretty predictable. But then again, you'll see fire running downhill, at least in my part of the world. You'll see fire running downhill. It's, it's a pretty wild phenomenon. Do you guys get anything like that to where uh, fire just rips downhill or just kind of just an abnormal fire behavior pattern? Uh, yeah, we get all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, as far as fire running downhill, the only time I think I've ever seen that was when a used helicopter uh, was taking footage of fire on one of the worst fire days we ever had and came too close to a front and actually drove it down the hill and into a structure. Oh, and shit. That structure was lost as a result of that. Um, and I think that's the only time I've ever seen it run down a hill. Um, it tends to trickle, and often what happens is the top fuel rolls down the hill, gets to the bottom, and then it runs back up the hill to a, a, a dead man's zone uh, right in the middle. So. so you get a lot. It's pretty much standard ops around here, too. It's, I mean, you get a lot of stuff, especially in, like, Southern California, since we're speaking of, comparatively speaking to Southern California, you get these things called uh, yucca. It's kind of like this cactus kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. They're really popular in Australia. Well, they were for a period, and now people just have them, like, they're everywhere, and they can't get rid of them because no one wants yucca plants anymore. Yeah. They're everywhere. So those things are, uh, like, a natural... Uh, a regular natural species that you occur like occur all the place all over the place in uh, southern california and those damn things the bases of them will burn out and the tops will be on fire or it'll just carry a bunch of ash and embers and those those goddamn things will roll all the way to the bottom of a hill and light little spot fires when they roll all the way down and then same thing fire rips back up the hill once it gets established and and it's normally that those are the ones that get get people off guard Oh yeah, those are the fires that catch people because they're like, oh, it's just trickling down. We're okay, and they hit that that little bit of log that rolled down. You know, that that two inch thick log that's burning at both ends, good and hot, and it just rolls down into the grass at the bottom, and off she goes in the dead dead material. Oh yeah, uh, especially with as <laughs> especially with as like uh, volatile eucalyptus is. There's a lot of oil and stuff. Yeah. It, it burns like a like. Like a son yeah. of a bitch, man. It's crazy. So there's an area in New South Wales, which is, so uh, if, if you picture Australia, the westernmost state is WA, Western Australia. Mm-hmm. You go clockwise and you've got the Northern Territory, Queensland, New South Wales. Inside New South Wales is the Australian Capital Territory. Then south of that, you have Victoria. Then you have Tasmania, which is an island to the south of Victoria. And then you go to the west again, and you've got South Australia. And in New South Wales is a massive national forest called the Blue Mountain, and it's, it's a beautiful part of the world. If any of uh, your listeners are ever visiting, it is a wonderful place to be. Um, but the reason it's called the Blue Mountains is because there is so much eucalyptus oil in the air that the air is tinged blue. No and shit. The, further, the clearer the day, the bluer it is. As you look, it's like looking into the sky on the horizon, except you're looking straight across a canyon. Oh, that's crazy, man. And that's just from the aerosolized yeah. oil, aerosolized oil, eucalyptus oil? That's right. That's insane, Pretty dude. Much. Yeah, dude, that's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, so, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, so speaking about yuccas and plants in Australia, that's kind of, well, I'm not sure if yuccas are native to Australia or at any level, but speaking about non-native 
that shit over so thanks australia yeah. thanks for your eucalyptus <laughs> oh man so let's get into a little bit more about what you actually do so you're a volunteer firefighter um you also work on air tankers you work on structure department you you pretty much do the gambit of everything uh, explain a little yeah. bit about what your primary duties are. Like, what what do you do? What's like an average day for you? So, uh, an average day for me is I I might be working uh, my full time job, which uh, is search and rescue. I'm a search and rescue officer, um, and then I might do my shifts there. And then on my way home, my pager goes off. That's right. I still run with a pager. Roll with that eighty style. Some people. Yeah, proper eighties. A lot of people give it looks. I love my pager. A lot of people think it's weird, but you know, whatever. Um, and pager will go off, and all of a sudden, I'll be on my way home, and now I need to go to the station because we need to respond to the next town over because there's a structure fire or there's a grass fire up the road. Um, so we'll respond to those, um, and that. An average day, that could be tomorrow, that could be tonight. My pager could go off in two minutes' time and, and off I go. Um, and then if I'm not doing that, I'm as, as you know, I'm studying to be a paramedic. So it's, it's this whole, <laughs> my whole life revolves around responding to emergencies that other people may be in, uh, I guess, which uh, is a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. But that's, that's sort of the stand today. Nice. So you're, you're pretty much all risk. Uh, you don't really, you were kind of telling me that you don't really respond to like medical calls too much unless you like arrive at an accident, like a, a vehicle accident or something like that. And you have to extricate and stabilize a patient for, uh, emergency medical services to get there. Right. Yeah, more or less. So we may be first on scene and, and obviously first on scene, we want to render, um, patient care as we can, so we'll provide first aid within our scope of practice, which is reasonably limited. Um, as, as firefighters, it's limited. Um, and then that will be collected by the state ambulance service um, in, in the, the country area that we're in and taken to, to higher care. But we'll do structure fires, we'll do hazmats, we'll do rescues, we'll do incidents, so, you know, uh, some of the things we get called to is someone gets stuck in some train tracks um, because they were tying their shoelaces and we'll go and <laughs> free them from that predicament. Um, I've been to many a kid with their head stuck in a toilet bowl and it never gets <laughs> like it is it's my favorite time of call to go to. But on the flip side of that, you know, we go to grass fires, we go to bushfires and wildfire and we go to suicide and fatalities and, and this whole broad spectrum of events. So like you say, we are all risk. Um, and at first I thought, I genuinely thought you were referring to uh, a more gung-ho attitude where, as in, we don't 
would take any challenge on because that's what we do. But I realize now you need all risk is in response to an issue. See, that's a big difference, man. Like American lingo versus Australian lingo. Uh, a lot of different terms for pretty much the same shit. But uh, let's go over some of the differences in lingo because there's a vast difference <laughs> in what you guys call certain things and what we call certain things. Let's talk about that, man. Sure. So aircraft's a really good spot to start. So you guys call them air tankers. We yep. call them uh, fire bombers or water bombers. Um, uh, we we share like helitac, so I think you guys call them helitac, which yeah. is what we used to call them. Yeah, I did um, helitac for a couple also, of years. Yeah, we also call them based on their role. So they might be called fire dog or bird dog or firebird, depending on what role they're performing overhead at that point in time. Um, so they might be doing observing, air observing, or they might be doing um, drop designating. And, and guidance for the uh, larger aircraft. So, so uh, that, that's one thing. On the sorry, uh, they'll so the hell attack. They also function as what we call air attack over there sometimes. Yeah, so there'll be air attack supervisors uh, until another aircraft comes in designated for that role. Because some of the helicopters, which they're spread throughout the state, they they get activated on two minute response or seven minute response, depending on. Uh, where they are and what they're doing. Um, and that means that they can sometimes be on scene before the air attack supervisors are. So they just start designating themselves targets. But they'll work with the incident controller on the ground uh, to do that. So, Another thing that, so we call it an IC, incident commander. You guys call it an incident controller? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, incident controller. Now, is there different levels of incident controllers? Like uh, over here in the States, we have like an IC-5, and that's going to be like your single tree lightning strikes. Then you have like an IC-4, which is a little bit more complex, then 3, 2, and 1. Then you have your Type 1s, which is your uh, your really complex large fires. Do you guys have the same kind of system? Yeah, we do. So uh, ours is levels 1, 2, and 3, and basically... Uh, the incident is driven by how it's divided, so its complexity. So if it's a, a fire that has you know, a certain number of divisions and then a certain number of sectors will become an IC1 incident. Um, we had a large mine fire, an open-cut coal mine with some fire uh, in, ooh, uh, I want to say like 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. uh, maybe. I'll, I'll confirm that. <laughs> So that was the highest level of complexity. That's crazy, man. So, other than that, um, what other kind of weird, like not necessarily, well, be I guess it'd be weird, not necessarily weird, but kind of foreign to us. What other terminology do you guys have that's different? Like, I understand that you call an engine something completely different. Yeah. So, based on my understanding of your engine, uh, we call them pumpers. So they they basically just have a big old pump on them. They carry about 2,000 litres of water. Now, uh, uh, for those playing at home, a gallon is equal to 3.4 litres, give or take. Okay. Uh, so these trucks are carrying, um, you know, let's say 500 gallons of water as their primary. 
primary attack supply uh, for structure firefighting and, and small instance car fires, uh, shed fires, small quick attack sort of fires. Um, then they connect up to a reticulated water supply and sort of go from there. But then the other side of that is we have tankers, which are our bush firefighting appliances. They're normally 4x4 four four or 2x2 two two, uh, and carry anywhere from sort of 1,700 litres of water, which is uh, 500 gallons, give or take, up to the, one of the trucks that we have in my brigade. We carry 4,000 litres of water, which is uh, you know uh, nearly 2,000 gallons. You know, or shy of 2,000 gallons, um, and and that's how we run that. So uh, that, that we also just in general, like you guys call it wildfire if it's in the grasslands or if it's in the brush or the chaparral, and we just call it bushfire or scrub fire or grass fire, um, depending on where it is. But mostly we'll just say bushfire season, bushfire if it's in the trees. If there's any trees burning, it's bushfire sort of thing. So. <laughs> It's pretty simplistic. You're like, oh, yeah, that's a bushfire. It's in the trees. So, like, I, I, yeah, that's good, I guess, for your, like, size up, like, your incoming resources. Because if you say grass fire, obviously everybody that knows uh, or everybody's going to know what kind of fuel you're fighting, what kind of fire behavior you're going to expect just based off of the name and alone of the radio call. That's right. That's yeah. right. And one of the key things, and we're really getting good at it now, is early reporting of what first appliance on scene getting. So, um, you know, we turn out from the fire station. It takes us three minutes to get out the door. We might be on scene 10 minutes later because it's a little bit out the back of our patch. And we see a massive column of smoke and we ask for additional appliances, trucks, SCVs, helicopters, aircraft, whatever. Um, but we say smoke showing, grass fire, bush fire, and, and really make it clear that it's having a run or it's you know it needs to be hit hard and fast and that's really what we're trying to do is hit everything hard and fast so pretty similar to the united states because we have you know a radio size up that we report to dispatch we report the fire in and that way you know everybody's on the same page with frequencies uh how to get there what fuel component you're in and you know the fire behavior uh so it's it's real similar it sounds like that you guys have the same exact program, pretty much. To, to some degree. From from that description that you just gave, uh, one of the differences might be that, uh, for example, we could get a call to a grass fire and then decide that we need to get another 50 trucks uh, there, so 200 firefighters, 50 appliances, um, and supporting equipment for those guys and gals. Um, and, and that could be all of a sudden you have a very limited setup for your scene, but you have 50 trucks coming to help you out. And, and that's something else that's a real big challenge that we're still getting on top of. Because um, each fire is run based on the primary area it's in. So uh, my brigade has its own response area. And if we get a fire in our patch, it's our responsibility to respond to it and make the judgment calls about it unless someone beats us there, um, which can happen. And, it's totally cool way it um, You know, everyone gets defensive about their patch, and I, I, I get it. Everybody's but, super uh, defensive territorial over their patch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can be, and it can be a real, real troubling thing because, you know, it, it gets under people's skin and tension builds, and it's, it's a bit shit, but, um, 
Yeah, it's it's kind of similar over here. You've got to find jobs for 50 trucks because you see a big hole in the smoke and you want them on the road sooner rather than later. Yeah, so, so you guys order the world. Be- you guys order all these resources and then, you know, I mean, it could be, you know, very well needed or you might have to cancel that response. So it's real, real similar to what we do too. Uh, it's still territorial over here. Um, but usually what happens is whoever's first on scene over here is usually the incident commander or incident controller. And then they do the size up and yeah. So real similar. Um, and then normally what, as the, as the job develops or the scenario develops, it then gets transitioned to higher levels of, of management as appropriate. So for example, I'm qualified as crew leader for a tanker and a pumper. Um, so if I'm the on scene and I ask for 50 tankers, I'm, I'll basically say make strike teams 10 and um, that'll be responded. When they get on scene, I'll also be asking for sector commanders. So I'll say make sector commanders 5 or sector commanders 2 and division commanders 1. And I'm basically creating that structure from the first clients on scene and I'm building it heavy structure or, or a structure that's above me to come in and take over is at the end of the day um i whilst i would love to run jobs more often than i do uh i like fighting fire so i want to be right at the tip of the spear to some degree and can't run a fire and fight a fire at the same time safely oh yeah i feel you man now like when you get into those over we call them overhead positions so you like when you get on scene, you build your incident command structure, all that stuff, or pass it off to a higher level of management or whatever. That's the best, like when you can go back to actually being on the line, cutting line, putting out fire, doing stuff with your crew. That's always the best. And I always tell some of the uh, newer firefighters, they're like your one, two, three year kind of firefighters that, you know, don't ever let this go because once you get into a higher level of management, you're going to lose a lot of that things, a lot of those things that you love as far as like engaging fire and doing all the fun, super fun shit of, with fire. That's, I always tell them to be like, yeah, don't be in a hurry to move up. No, no. And, and it's interesting because in a season as a volunteer, you know, I, I might go to three major fires and spend a total of, 12 days away from home across that season Uh but that's at one fire elsewhere in the state i might spend eight days at a local fire because i have to go out each morning with a crew to check that it hasn't broken the lines we've put in you know make sure there's no new start that are going to give us grief when the wind picks up tomorrow um so what's what's really different is you guys might spend six months of your year away uh doing firefighting and I might only spend 20 days of a summer or a season away doing it. And just, like, I, I have nothing but absolute respect for the guys that do that because, man, it's, it can be a real hard slog after, you know, at 20 days or I think the longest I ever did was a total of about six weeks over one summer. Um, and that was a rare, that's a rare thing to have happen. And it was basically because I was working at a bar at the time and, I didn't really want to necessarily be at work because drunk people suck. Yeah, and, uh, no shit, right? So I went in full fire. Yeah. That's cool, man. So it's, it's, you know, it's totally different. And, and hearing the 
guys over the last couple of weeks talk about their experiences um, and and how you guys deal with your after season period. It's it's just phenomenally interesting because it's so totally different for us. Well, you guys, you, for the most part, it seems like you guys get to go back to your, like your regular life, and you guys have like more of a support structure, I guess. Um, yeah. But with right. us, it's and we're kind of dumped off and like left to our own devices after the end of six months. Yeah. So the, there are people within the state of Victoria and every state within Australia who work for the state government, as uh, we call them, project firefighters. Um, and basically, they they form hand crews, repel crews, isolated, remote response crews um, for the summer. This is and this is good stuff, Jack. This is good stuff right here, man. So now that we're on the subject, man, let's give a rundown of the different types of crews that you guys have over there. Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, at at the state level, the state government of each. Uh, state provides um, a forestry service, a parks and wildlife type service, mm-hmm. and then there'll be a state rural firefighting service and a metropolitan firefighting service. So there's anywhere between sort of three to maybe five or six different firefighting agencies within a state. Um, so, for example, I'm part of the Country Fire Authority, which is the volunteer rural firefighting service in Victoria. Okay. Um, there's the Metropolitan Fire Service in Melbourne, and then we have the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, who are the state project firefighters, along with Parks Victoria and Forest Fire Management Victoria, um, who all we all work together to combat public and private land wildfire. Um, and that's reasonably similar throughout the entire country, um, but different states have different numbers so i think uh victoria has fifty-nine thousand firefighters across the state um and then the northern territory for example has something like you know two thousand um and it's a population versus area sort of thing um so there are guys who are on six month contracts nine month contracts and then they do it as full-time work so their jobs are they'll be a ranger say six months of the year at a, a state park and then they'll do six months as a firefighter um, for based out of that state park and then they go through that cycle. So there are people who are doing six months of hard yakka firefighting for the for the year and that's their income and then they're left to their own devices. But it's it's not the bulk of our firefighting resource, which it sounds like you guys are sort of based a lot on your hotshot crews and your, your IC crews. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, your, what do you call them? Type, type 2 crews, I think they are. Yeah, well, we have uh, Type 1 crews, which are hotshots. Those are like your first in, last out kind of guys. Then we have Type 2 uh, initial attack qualified crews, which are to, uh, they're a little bit, whether it be overhead or capabilities wise, they're a little bit less qualified than the Type 1 guys. And then there's Type 2 crews. And these are all uh, hand crews. So these guys, you know, they march in on foot and they put out the fire, cut line, stuff like that, mop up, whatever. Uh, just based off their capabilities, yeah. that's like kind of the breakdown of the structure of hand crews. Yeah. So our, our services are the same to some degree. We have hand crews, but the hand crews are normally based in helicopters. So they repel out and they're wrap crews, really. 
or they're associated with a light four-wheel drive vehicle that carries, you know, 400 or 180 gallons of water and they firefight from that. But then they might, as a team, all go out and there'll be 30 of them doing a scratch line um, or they'll be doing backburning or burning out operations in conjunction with tankers which are carrying thousands of litres of water and their own equipment. And it's very much an interagency operation every time. Gotcha. So you guys do have kind of a, like an organization, like a, like a, or like a hand crew, like a hotshot crew, like the highly trained, highly qualified 30 man, 20 man crews that go out there and fight fire. Uh, not, not necessarily. Uh, but there are crews that work to that effect. Um, but they aren't specialized to do that. It's just, they may be, they may be asked to do that or required to do that as part of a response to a particular job. Gotcha. So some of the topography, for example, in the northeast of the state is mountainous. It's very much um, big, steep hills, thick bushland, lots of, you need to run a lot of dozer lines in and then back those up with back burning, uh, burning out and then hand crews because the trucks, the nearest point of water is a 45 minute drive down the hill on four by four those are tracks um, so these guys are working you know hand tools real hard for a long time um, I had the pleasure of working with one crew in a part of the state called Goongara uh, on a fire in many years ago now and um, we were working with them uh, at the time they were called Department of Environment um, oh uh, Deputy Deppy was the name of the agency. Uh, I can't remember what it stands for anymore, but um, <laughs> they change every two years. Oh, yeah, there's always some and, new new agency or new yeah. acronym. <laughs> always. That's right, and I, I just forget that information. I just dump it straight away because we, we often come up with a funny name for them, but that's another story. Um, and we were working on this particular fire with um, some guys from New Zealand who were an arduous work crew. So they were, they were essentially hot shots. There was 30 of those guys. And they're absolute beasts. Like, I couldn't keep... I was a young, much younger fellow then, and I couldn't keep up with them if I tried. And I was trying. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a different system with parts of both systems seeming to have got a crossover. And it, it's really interesting because the goal is the same. It's just totally different how we achieve them. Yeah. So it's pretty much standard ops over here comparatively speaking to you guys i mean it's it's like i said it's real similar you guys have helicopter crews you have rap crews you have you know hand crews or hot shots it's it's all pretty much the same same way of doing business it's just a lot of different lingo and yeah. what we know, don't have that i think would be really cool and and these guys are insane is uh smoke jumpers like oh you guys don't have smoke jumpers jumping that's, uh, that's not a thing for us um yeah, if, if there's a, a fire in the middle of the forest, out in the middle of nowhere, and if it's noticed, then they'll probably put uh, an air tanker on it, so one of the, the large air tankers, the lap, uh-huh. as we call um, and they'll just bomb it half a dozen times, put a control line in, and eventually it'll probably burn itself out. Huh. It's, I'm surprised, you, yeah, I'm surprised you guys don't recruit the smoke jumpers to come down there and uh, help out every once in a while, especially in the winter, man. Um I've heard of times in the past where they have made a trip down there, but uh, 
I don't know. It, just, it doesn't seem like it's a very well utilized thing because I think there's a lot to be to be exchanged. There's a lot of information and a lot of knowledge to be exchanged there because the way you guys do business and fight fire down there, we can learn off that. And the way we do business and fight fire up here, you your agencies can uh, you know learn off of that too. I think it'd be kind of cool if we uh, had like an exchange program again. Oh look, well if y'all are hiring, I'll uh, I'll get the next flight over and just mash out season. <laughs> oh man, I, I'd have to look into that. Uh, I'll do some research and see uh, what we can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, I'd be super keen if anyone has any uh, offers. <laughs> Take a little sabbatical and go fight fire in America. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah, basically. Um, but, you know, the, the difference is, as well is a lot of the firefighting we do in the agency I'm a part of is that it's based on trucks. So we realistically don't work away from our trucks more than maybe 100 metres. So, you know, 300 feet, we might drag hose through the bush to, to black out and to knock down fires in, in an area. But we generally stay with our big red trucks. Um, and, and that's something that, that I'm very I'm very comfortable with. Uh, like I, I like seeing a big red truck nearby mm-hmm. because some of the bush we have, some of the coastal heat we have, which is where that chaparral type stuff is, you know, it's so easy to get caught off guard and, and on bad days, and we, we have really bad days, um, you know, you don't want to be too far from the truck. And yeah. I'm a real big fan of Rakos, like, and chainsaws. I think that they're one of the most underutilized pieces of equipment on the truck in Victoria. Um, people are scared of Rakos. They think they're outdated. They think that it's something that you get the new guys to do as a punishment, like, uh, and not not a punishment, but almost like a, a bastardization type drill. <laughs> Here, you get the rookie tool. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, basically, it's like, oh, I go and put a line in, but I, I love it. I, I've put out more fire with a Rayco than I have with water from a hose, I think. Um, and it, it saved our butt a couple of times at that same fire I was talking about before, the Goongara fire. The nearest water point was 45 minutes drive away, and we had thousand litres of water to use so uh, just quickly on the gallons conversion that's you know it's like 300 gallons of water and we needed to consolidate about a mile and a half of line uh, to, to try and prevent it from jumping a road and a, a dozer trail and the only way we could do that without using all our water was to dig holes in the sand fill them with burning material break hoe it full of burning stuff and then dig it back into the sand with a bit of foam on top of it. And we worked for 14 hours doing this across that length and we got it done and still had water in our tank. Nice. And it, it was hard work and, and man, like I'd, I'd love to do it again, but people are scared to use these hand tools to achieve these jobs. Well, that's the thing but though. The you need to, that, you need to tool your stuff. That That's the thing is you need to stick a tool in it, at least over here. Um, we it's when we mop up, you know, it's hands and hands in the dirt, and you're scraping shit, and you're just putting everything out. So it's really important that you know, you don't just like, we call it water mopping, or just uh, hydro mopping. It's where you try and put out fire with just water, and sometimes that does that just doesn't work because you got to get down underneath everything, you know. That's right. There's 
some of the areas that we're fighting fires, they haven't burnt in so long that the oil, uh, the, the biomatter in the soil is just so rich that it smoulders for days and days and days. And all of a sudden, somewhere where you, you thought the fire was very inactive has now become your new head, your fire's head. And you've got a running fire in line with the wind that you didn't have three days ago because you thought you had it under control. Yeah. And that's, that's a massive issue that, that people need to understand. Um, and I don't know what it's like for you guys about how, what the attitude towards doing that hard jacker with, with your guys that are working on water trucks, you know, how they deal with it. I don't know what the attitude is towards doing that. Well, it's hit or miss, you know, you got, it's, it's just like with any other job, you got the good and the bad folks. I mean, for my, for, you know, my module, I try and make it a point to, you know, you're going to put this damn fire out. You're going to do a good job. You're going to be able to walk away with it and put your name on it, so to speak. Because if you don't, I mean, what's the point? You might have something that escapes a containment line. Yeah, like, I, I often say the sentence, if I'm the crew, if, I, if I'm working with my crew leader and I'm looking at it and he goes, are you happy? And I say, no, I'm not happy with it. And he goes, oh, well, you know, it's time to pack up and head home. If I've said I'm not happy with it, I'm not leaving until I am. Because if it runs again tomorrow when the wind picks up, I know it's going to be because I fucked up. Or I, sorry, not that I fucked up. Uh, but I let someone else dictate whether I was satisfied with the work I'd done. Yeah. And that's important, man. You need to, you know, have a good quality of work. Because if you don't, well... Shit could blow up on you later. Like you're saying, three days later, you could have a, you know, a, fi- a place of the fire or a spot on the fire that you thought was out, and then it can go up again. So, right. pretty much the same strategy and tactics. I mean, you know, quality of work, everything's the same. And uh, we actually have a, a a slang term for those people that kind of just like do a shit job and then walk away from it. We call them baggers. Like there's like yeah they're bags of crap you know so (laughs) it's kind of interesting to see that you guys have the same thing uh do you guys what do you guys call call like uh like what we call baggers what do you guys call them like people that are just kind of like halfing half-assing everything what do you guys call them uh i don't think i can say it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the wording the wording will vary from time to time but it'll mostly uh yeah I don't think it's worth saying. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, we're a team on the truck and we're a team on our crew. And if someone on the crew isn't performing, then that's the strength of that crew is dictated by that, that weak link. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we try and get through recruits right from the bat is that we expect you to do a good job. And we know that you're going to be hot and tired and your lungs are going to be full of smoke and you're not going to be able to see and it's loud and it's shit. But hey, that's firefighting, man. And we expect you to do it. And if you're not doing that, you're putting everyone around you at risk. You're putting yourself at risk. And that's unacceptable. Oh, absolutely, man. Um, and and in terms of risk, uh, you know, we, we unfortunately, in, in the 80s, uh, a truck from Geelong, which is another major uh, regional town in Victoria, one of the crews from a truck there 
they unfortunately perished when they got caught on a relatively benign fire day. That's always that what happens, though. That's what, so that's one of our common, de- we call them common denominators, and that's one of our common denom- denominators of tragedy fires is a very benign fire or like a un- unexpected fire, you know, something that's kind of mellow that yeah. has potential, but we kind of get operationally blind to it, and uh, yeah. so, sometimes it, so it, it unfortunately blows effect. up. I think another one of the denominators, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is fire below where they are. Yeah. So, so most people get caught by a fire below them rather than it coming head on or, or any other kind of method. It's normally below them. It's normally below them, but it's, uh, you know, there's there's another common denominator right there too. It's uh, unburned fuel between you and the fire. Okay. So if there's, right. you know, like, green in between you and the black or the main fire and where you're at, you know, green in between you. So that's always yeah. a common denominator as well. So... What, what happened to this crew essentially was that they had no water to defend themselves with. They couldn't go into what we call a burnover procedure, um, and they couldn't defend themselves. And unfortunately, five, five young, very, very talented men lost their lives, and um, it immediately instilled change in the service that all the trucks in the, the state of Victoria that were engaged in bush firefighting operations had to be fitted with uh, crew protection spray. So if we get into the into the shit, we pull a lever and we have a reserve of water about, it works out to be about 200 gallons on per truck that's designed to be sprayed out nozzles around the cab and around the deck and protect the crew um, basically because we lost people, and whenever we lose people, we find ways to make sure it never happens again. And, that's the and un- that was the outcome of that. Yeah, and that's the unfortunate thing is, like, with a development of a fire program, no matter how many years it takes, all those lessons learned are lessons learned the hard way. So, unfortunately, that's what I try and stress upon people that are coming into this is, like, you know, pay attention to your watch-out situations and your your standard fire orders because unfortunately people had to pass away, had to die to, for us to realize this, we had to learn the hard way. So people died so that we could be better, better and safer at what we do. And to, to ignore that is, is an affront to that, that loss and that tragedy. It's pretty awful. Absolutely. So that's, that's another reason that people stick with their trucks is that their safety in that water and it's not be all and end all. It, it may not be sufficient at the end of the day, but it's there. And it's amazing that people will go, you know, miles into the bush or miles into the forest for you guys, scratch lines, and then have to rely on, uh, I think they're made of fiberglass, aluminium, the aluminum the, for you guys. Yeah, uh, we have fire, fire shelters. shelters. Yeah, the fire shelters. And you guys yeah. don't carry those. No, no, not not to the best of my knowledge. They aren't carried in Victoria because the idea is is that any crew working remotely in the bush is accompanied by air support or by ground-based support that isn't overwhelmingly far away um, and can respond reasonably quickly. Gotcha. To some degree. But that's not a perfect system either. And it's us. Because, you know, people want to get out there and scratch the line and do a good job, but you've got to stay safe. 
Well, and it can be really hard to decide what is safe and what's not in the bush sometimes. Yeah. And that's the thing, though, too. It's, it's you know, the fire, a couple acres isn't worth your life. I'm sorry. It's it's not. No, no. 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 Well, I'll go one step further than that. There is, there is nothing on the fire ground that I think is worth more than my life. So if it's not safe for me to do it, and it could cost me my life, I will think very hard about doing it, even if it means that it costs someone else their life. And that that's supported, our agency supports us in that. So it's crew first before we start helping the public, because if we get in trouble trying to help the public, then everyone loses out. And we've, we've failed our job and made it worse. Yeah. So, well, you um, can't help and, if you're dead, so... <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. Or and, injured. You know, that's, the, that's the most blatant way of wording it, but it's the most honest way is that you can't do anything for anyone if you're dead. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's the thing. It's like I'd never asked my crew to do something that I wasn't comfortable doing myself, so it seems that's, like... That's it. If I wouldn't do it, I'm not going to ask anyone else to do yeah. it. Yeah, and it um, seems... And, oh, go ahead. And there are things that I would do that I like. I would be comfortable doing, but I wouldn't be comfortable asking someone else to do it. Still. Yeah, and that's there are a- risks that I would take because I have an experience level beyond theirs that I wouldn't ask of them to do, even if it meant a learning opportunity for them, even if it meant a development for them. Yeah. Because if I do that and it goes wrong, it's on me, and and I don't want to wear. I don't want that to be what my career becomes is a mistake after a mistake and someone else gets hurt. Oh, absolutely, man. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a crazy thing too, is like we have uh, protocols for operational turndowns due to like, or turning down, refusing risk. So we, we're able to do that. We have the ability to ref- properly refuse risk. And uh, I'm judging by that last conversation, you guys have the same ability to do that. You guys can turn down an assignment due to safety or whatever, and you can suggest another assignment or a, a different right. way of doing it. So, and and any person on the crew at any time can call. No dust. This is too much. We need to reassess. Oh yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you stop what you're doing. It means that as a crew, you have thirty seconds of chat where you say, hey, "Listen, I'm not comfortable because of A, B, and C, or I'm seeing something that I'm not sure anyone else is seeing." And then you either resolve the issue and you have a quick chat about it, or you decide collectively that someone's not happy and we need to pull out for five minutes and get our shit squared away. Because if one person isn't happy, there's a weak link again. You know, you've got a person who's worried about something now. And we shouldn't be worried about something that no one else is. Everyone should be worried about the same thing as a crew and working together to make sure that we're on the same page. Oh, absolutely. And, and I can definitely tell that it's the same for, for y'all. Oh, yeah. And that's how, for the majority of the crews over here in the States, I mean, that's usually how they operate is, you know, if anybody's like saying, seeing something, I mean, it's a really, that's a communication thing too. If someone's seeing something that you're not seeing, say something. Because as yeah, like an incident commander, yeah, you owe it to them. As an incident commander or an engine boss or a crew boss or anything like that, you... You're, you're kind of in a fog sometimes and you can't see everything that's going on. There's a ton of shit going on all at once and now you got the responsibility of 20 other people going. It's important for them to communicate up and down that chain and actually say something. Absolutely. How do, so we obviously use 
use red flag warnings, and I know you guys do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, our red flag warnings, our procedure is that every person, so it'll come from the you know the sector commander to the strike team leaders inside the, that sector, and then the strike team leaders will pass crew leaders on each appliance or truck or, or task group, and then that crew leader passes it to each person, and then it goes back up the chain. So basically, if I'm, for example, um, and I, I don't operate on this truck, but if I'm on Bailey Yang tanker, I would say Bailey Yang tanker acknowledge red flag warning to whoever passed it to me after I've said to my guys, hey, listen, weather's about to change. We're expecting a storm cell in 15 minutes. Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing over here too. Uh, usually I'll do a call out on the radio and they'll, uh, or like dispatch or somebody or the incident commander or communications uh, div- division. Someone will say, yeah, hey, we got, we got a thunder cell, you know, 30 miles out tracking east. Uh, expect gusty outflow winds and occasional or frequent lightning, whatever. And then every resource will go through and acknowledge that message. Like, yeah, copy and we get red flag warning, blah, 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 blah. So it's pretty much the same operating procedure over here as well as you guys. Yep. Oh, did I lose you? Yeah. Oh, there, there we, we are. Thought I lost you for a hey, second. You yeah, I got you. Yeah. So, um, that, that, you know, that system works actually do well for us and we're very switched on about all these things and, and that part of that crew awareness, you know, your situational awareness of the crew is so so critical oh yeah and absolutely it, it's a skill that takes time to form but it's something that you have to have immediately which is just really tricky for some new new members and new new persons on the ground so yeah yeah it's it's important man communications sa situational awareness it's you know critical to our jobs speaking of absolutely. like so I'm looking at some stuff right now on uh, wildfire today, uh, some of the archives, and uh, I'm looking at some of the brush fires that you guys got to, and uh, or you guys haven't had in Melbourne or not Melbourne in Victoria, and uh, I'm looking at this this bunyip fire. Tell me about that, man. That was, it looks pretty gnarly. Yeah. So the bunyip fire occurred uh, in uh, late January, mid February of this year, um, 2019. Uh, and basically, it was a series of lightning strikes started fires in the Jembrook State Forest and the Bunyip State Forest, which are to the east and northeast of Melbourne uh, City. Um, these fires eventually ran to the east under quite strong wind. And yeah, it looks like you guys um, are getting like a offshore wind. Because uh, I'm, I'm looking. I, I confirm or deny that if I'm honest. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it probably was offshore because um, it's inland a little bit. But basically, uh, I ended up doing a couple of different shifts there, uh, doing different roles to, to respond to that fire. Um, and it was the first big fire in an area like that in a long time. Um, the previous time there was a fire was 2009 on Black Saturday, which which we should get talking about at Absolutely. some point. Quite a phenomenal day in history for us. Um, and this fire would continue to run, and it, it ran through townships called Tainong and Labatouche and um, Jembrook and places like that. And, and it 
didn't do a massive amount of damage. I don't think there was a huge amount of structures lost, but it was a reminder of the potential that exists. And as people continue to move from the urban fringe into the rural urban interfaces um, and, and into rural environments, they're coming into contact with fire. And these are people who don't traditionally have massive quantities of interaction with fire. You know, I grew up in a country town. Uh, the house I grew up in was bordered by wild grasslands and, and paddocks. And it wasn't uncommon over a summer for us to have to pack up all the photos in the house, start filling the gutters with water because we were expecting to have to evacuate because there was a fire yeah. on its way. Um, and, you know, but there's people who grew up in, a, in an apartment in the city of Melbourne that are moving into bushland and all of a sudden there's a, a fire coming and holy shit, you know, what do I do? What's going on? Yeah, well, they haven't been um, exposed that, to it, so... I mean, this yeah, totally that, the same thing here. one of the things from this fire, the Bunyip fire, is that there was a lot of people who had either sort of not forgotten as such, but they, they'd let it slip to the back of their mind about fires, and there were people that were new to fire altogether. It's kind of like almost they uh, not necessarily forgot about Black Saturday, but it's kind of just faded from memory just enough to where there was an eye-opening... Uh, experience and it's like oh shit yeah fire is real <laughs> we deal with yeah, it now the, what's even more interesting about that sort of sentiment that and that that's my opinion you know i, I can't necessarily say that, that is a general feeling but that's how i feel towards it um let me just say that but it's it's actually the 10 year anniversary of those fires this year yes so um, on the 7th february 2009 uh a a whole series of fires started on a catastrophically dangerous day. So you guys have a fire danger rating system that's not dissimilar to ours, low, moderate, high, very high, severe, extreme. Yeah. Um, we had to create a new category of fire danger after that day, and that's catastrophic code red. So basically, on code red days, don't step outside. You'll look at the grass funny and it'll spontaneously combust. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if you sneeze in the forest, all trees are going to explode. It's really like, holy shit, pack a factor 10. The whole state, is, everyone sitting in a fire truck ready to go is, is sort of how we respond to that now. So everybody's sitting on standby during that yeah, catastrophic so fire? I, I actually took six weeks of leave from work over the summer, and I spent most of my days off on leave at the fire station waiting for the tones to drop. Um, which they did a couple of times, which is always nice because, you know, I've taken leave for it. So it was good to get out and about. But basically on these really bad days, code red days, people are just ready to go um, within 90 seconds. So, so on this, it's like a huge response and everybody's pretty much staged for the most catastrophic fire behavior that you guys have on your scale, basically. That's right. So a normal hot day response might be, four trucks from four different brigades uh-huh. and on a really bad day it might go up to you know 10 trucks immediately so straight off the bat the call comes in and the closest 10 trucks are already being turned out to it oh, off the bat and then those trucks will request more trucks and that cascade starts um but on this particular day in 2009 there was uh or, or between the 7th of february and, and sort of late march there was 400 separate fires that were considered, um, you know, significant and, and burnt a period of bush or a, an amount of bush and 
uh, private land, pasture, grassland across the state. And it actually burnt 1.1 million acres over that period of time. Uh, 3,500 structures were destroyed and 173 people died as a direct result of, of that conflagration or those conflagrations. Um, so for context, this works out to be about 2% of the state of Victoria was burning uh, across that period. And um, how many acres yeah, are in uh, how many acres are in Victoria? So the state of Victoria is uh, 20 sorry 57 million acres. Okay. And this fire was 1.1 million. Jesus. Well, these fires, because they were all over the state in different terrains, different setups, different sizes. Um, the the worst fire was probably the King Lake fire, which is relatively close to Melbourne. It's only about an hour's drive northwest of, uh, northeast of Melbourne. And uh, that fire was 820,000 acres on its own. Damn. That's crazy, yep. man. Repeat that number again. 820,000 acres. That's insane. On that one fire. That's a, that's a massive wildfire. It is. So it was, uh, it was two fires that joined. So originally it was the King Lake Fire and the Marysville Fire, and it became the King Lake Marysville Complex. Um, it's, it's something that is used to show fire progression on the worst of the worst. It's it's not a simulated scenario. It's, they show a, a Phoenix map of it and it's used for training a lot because it is so unbelievably massive. And it, I, I dare say Australia has not seen a fire like it in its entire history. And there would be very few places in the world where they will have seen fire behave the way it did. God damn, man, that's crazy. And now... Uh... So I understand that Black Saturday, you guys have a national day of, um, like an, almost a national day of remembrance for it, right? Or is it a state uh, state day yeah, of remembrance? We, we do, especially in Victoria. Um, it, it's a day that every, every year since it occurred has been reflected on as being, it's been a year since, and two years since, five years. And a lot of firefighters throughout the state don't, it's never too far away from their memory, um, especially in February. I think a lot of people reflect on it, and it can be a really tough time for people. Um, and something that this service does really well is mental support for those people. And, um, you know, you were talking to, to Nelda in the first episode. I hope I'm saying that right. I think it was Nelda. Yeah, it was um, Nelda. Yeah. She's awesome, and man. <laughs> basically, you know, the, the government or the... the the body that we operate under the statutory authority provides really, really definitive mental support and, and life support for those persons and people who are emotionally connected to that day and will forever be emotionally connected to it by the fact that they were there or by the fact that they know someone who lost a house or they lost a friend. Um, you know, it's, and it, it's just, yeah, it's a massive, massive thing for, for Victorian firefighting history and, and just Australian history in general. That's crazy, dude. Yeah, we have, I, I mean, we have a couple fires that are, you know, comparative in size, but as far as, I mean, loss of life, we've had the campfire last year. That was uh, pretty insane. You know, I think there was uh, somewhere in the 80s. I want to say the high 80s. 
as far as direct loss of life from that fire. And uh, I think the final count on um, loss of property, I think it was something like 2,700 homes or something like that. I'd have to look up the stats. I could pull up the stats, but if memory serves me correctly, uh, 2,700 homes and I believe the high 80s as direct loss of life. But in size, uh, it was, well, a relatively small fire. So, I mean... And, and just correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, California has one of the most dense populations. Like, it, it's very densely populated where it's populated, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know, the population density in the um, very urban areas is very dense. Uh, but now those people are, you know, over the years, you know, those people are spreading out, getting out of the city and moving into that interface. And, uh, it's just more and more and more and more. And now with climate change, the interaction between fire and uh, the WUI is wildland urban interface. Uh, it's increasing at a very rapid rate. So now we're having these catastrophic fires, not only in California, but across the West Coast in general. And uh, there's a lot of loss of property as a result of it. Yeah. So I think it's important that, you know, prevention... And uh, teaching a firewise community, I think preaching that message is wildly important. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, you know, for for me being an Australian firefighting, I, I distinctly recall watching the campfire as it eventuated. I, I watched paradise burn to the ground, and you know, it's it's the most bizarre thing as a sentence to say that I, I watched paradise burn ground because you don't think you'll ever actually say that sentence in your life yeah and it's a beautiful part of the state too yeah absolutely it was wonderful i I road trip through it and it was it was amazing start to finish but i just i found i find it so phenomenal that there can be so much property loss in in these areas and it's just insane and it it goes to that urban expansion uh, for sure and we're seeing that now our grasslands back onto, especially in the northern parts of Melbourne and the northwestern parts of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, the suburbs are now encroaching on native grassland and people are having grass fires knocking at their back door at summer. And a lot of what we're trying to do in the pre-summer phase and, and during summer is to say, if there's a fire coming towards your house, move your car two streets back, stay away, You know, let us get in and do our thing. Uh, we might break down your fence so that we can get access back. You know, your bank is when your house is still there. Um, yeah, and you know what? Your house is insured for the most part. Your your life, however, yeah, is yeah. completely invaluable. I mean, it's 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 precious. Your life is way more important than your possessions. That's right. And no matter what you do, uh, it, it, you're better off. If, if you aren't equipped to fight a fire, don't try. Call someone who's, who's equipped, yeah. and equipped and let them worry about it. You just get your photos, get your important documents, and go. Absolutely. at the end of the day, as long as you've got your birth certificate, your passport, there's plenty of support out there to make sure that you don't get lost in the crowd. And and I think people sometimes worry that they're just going to, you know, their house burns down, they lose everything, and then they just fade out of existence, I guess. So I got some stats for you on the campfire. Um, 
which is crazy because it started, you know, it started very late year. It started in November, which is that's right. I I, I recall a lot of people being like, "This is this is the new abnormal about that fire." They said this will be normal one day, but for now, this is new abnormal. Oh yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's it's a year round fire season now, and uh, let's see, we got it started November eighteenth, or sorry, November eighth. Uh, and let's see, it caused 85 civilian fatalities, injured 12, uh, see five firefighters lost their lives. And let's see, it was 1,053, acres. So, or, uh, sorry, 100,053 or <laughs> 153,336 acres and 18,804 structures lost. It was, yeah, it's saying that it's uh, the most, the world's costliest natural disaster in 2018. That, that does not surprise me at all. I, it was, it was astonishing. And I must admit that I think the fact that it's called the campfire almost undermines how serious of an event it was. That sounds super benign. Yeah. Benign. It sounds like it's almost jovial. Is I think of the campfire. I think ah, uh, excellent camping, great, having a good time. But uh, people were not having a good time. From, no, from what I saw. And that's the thing. Um, so it was like a very rural, mountainous area. Um, and I think uh, I remember talking to a couple of the guys that were uh, initial attacking that fire. So they're for, you know some of the first resources on that, and they were saying that it was absolute fucking chaos because of the amount of people trying to get in and out and just the sheer panic one way, you know, or two lane roads, one way in one way out kind of scenario and nobody could get out. That was, yeah, yeah it was insane. If, if, I, I mean, I watched the footage and I saw all those cars and I, it really worried me that none of them had X's on them to show that they'd been checked because uh, I the amount of cars I saw, I saw buses, I saw cars, I saw trucks. I was just thinking, holy shit, how are the, where are the people? Whose car is that? Why is it where it is? Because it was on the road, and yeah. that means that it was probably being driven uh, from sort of how it looks anyway. I just thought, holy shit, you know, where are the, who's, are we even worried about looking for people yet, or is that is that going to happen later? And that's the thing, is like search and rescue, they just couldn't get in there. That's, yeah. And, they and they then, couldn't. I think, there was a massive series of floods in the last sort of six months that have caused a whole heap of landslides in those areas now. Oh, yeah. So you so. got the Woosley Fire and uh, all the Thomas Fire, all those areas in Southern California and Northern California, the Camp Fire. Because now this is the things that the long-term damage that no one ever thinks about is the flooding concerns, the crazy landslides and all that like subsequent damage that comes as a result of these catastrophic wildfires. This is shit that no one thinks about and it could have been prevented. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that came out of the 2009 fires in particular uh, for us was that the fire burnt so hot and, and I don't want to say a particular number because I'm not sure it'd be right but it, I think it was, you know, it, it sterilized the earth. There was no longer any bio, you know, no bacteria in the soil that would normally be a major part of the, the regrowth period after a fire. 
and the seed that would normally be released by the trees couldn't withstand the heat either, so they were totally destroyed. And basically, there were entire areas of the state that were sterilised of tree and plant, soil and bacteria. And it, it's just phenomenal. These long-term effects of fires, we're, we're there for when it's hot and when it's smoky, but I think people can really improve their, their understanding of fire by going back a year later and looking at what it looks like. The long-term consequences of it. Absolutely. And, and the scars that it forms on people, you know, coming back to that mental health and stuff, you know, people, some people have one bad experience with fire and they move to the middle of the city and they never touch the bushland again because all they can see is how bad it can get. And, you know, I think I said this to you while we were actually in the Otway. You reach a certain point where as you look around, you're like, holy shit, there's just fuel everywhere. I okay. don't want to be here on a 40-degree day when the wind's blowing at 30 kilometres an hour. Like, I, I just don't want to be anywhere near this. Yeah. But I've been there for that exact reason during that So, you know, it's, it's sort of 50-50. Yeah, it's crazy. I was, I was, like I said, man, I was blown away by the fuel density and the topography when we were cruising around uh through the what was what was that waterfall called that we we went down to great great outway we went zip lining we went through lorne all that stuff and then we went up to uh the waterfall what was that waterfall called uh earth Gine falls yeah that was some crazy crazy shit man but i was like yeah. <laughs> you're like looking at this beautiful scenery of this waterfall and then you just what was going through my head at that time? I'm like, holy shit! I do not want to be here during a hot day no. in the middle of summer. Yeah, you couldn't. You you won't catch me dead in the bushland in the summer. No, not unless there's a big red truck nearby. <laughs> I don't blame you, man. That's yeah. crazy. Um, I was hoping to actually have a, a quick chat about some particular experiences I had. Yeah, like, dude, you got a like, badass story, man. Let's hear it. Yeah, sweet. So, on one of your previous episodes with Nelda, you were talking about how people sort of respond to mental health and, and section right after fire season where people are no longer employed. They've done it six months. And that really got me thinking about some of the tougher times I've had on the fire ground and after the fire ground. And one of those times was, you know, we were... We went along the Dozer Trail under instruction from someone that hadn't really inspected the Dozer Trail um, to see what the fuel loading was like. And so already there's a problem. We didn't have all the information we need. Mm-hmm. It wasn't we had one method in and one method out, and that's one gateway that the Dozer cut for us. And the fire was coming towards us, and it looked benign. It looked like it wasn't going to really run that hard. But all of a sudden, we're looking and we're looking and it comes out of the trees like a cut snake. And it was probably the first time on the fire truck that I've ever actually really been scared. And I went, holy shit, what am I doing here? We need to, we need to bail out now and move to the other side of this tree line um, and get into the clearing ahead of us. And we, we got out just in time, really. And it sat with me for a long time. And I, I thought about how that affected me and it encouraged me to do things differently and not go through that I, I didn't want to be as blase about where I was going anymore if someone was going to send me somewhere I wanted to know that they knew it was safe 
and they could tell me about it. And now, if someone asks me to go somewhere and they can't describe what the road's like because they haven't driven it, I'll be really cautious about taking a crew down there. If I, I'll consider maybe even walking it, you know, first before I even go up there with a truck. And I think that experience will stay with me for a very long time. And it, it's not so much bad, you know, badass story. It, it's just kind of that affirming story of things can go wrong and we've got to be on top of it. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing. I think that's like one of those pivotal moments in any firefighter's life is where you kind of wake up, like you start your fire season out or your fire career out and you're just like this naive kid who just really doesn't know shit. And then you'll have that like one close call or that wake up call where that one pivotal moment where you wake up and you realize, all right, the shit is real. Yeah. And I think that's important, you know, and it's like one of those hard lessons learned. But, Absolutely, and and I I'm lucky that I learned the lesson, and I don't have any any scars to show for it, you know. But on that mental health, it, it took me a couple of days to really get back to being a hundred percent. And one of the things that the the country fire authority does really well is mental health support. So if there's a peer support network, I can call up and say, "Look, I'm having a bad day at work. You know, can I have a chat?" And just there's someone to listen. But they're a colleague. They get it. They get in that situation. They they are, you know, you're talking to someone who knows what's what, and that makes a massive difference. And and you know, if this if this sort of sentence gets to anyone, you know, if you have something going on, talk to your peers. You know, they're there for you. They're your mates. They're your buddies. They got your back. Because if you're not 100, percent your crew's not 100, percent and it's just so important that you get on top of that shit right when it right when it's in the vibes, you know. Oh, yeah. You can't let it get there. You have to be on top of it. And I think it's important that you guys have a peer support network too um, because a lot of the programs that we have, they'll just like refer you to, you know, captain psychologist with, you know, has no relation to fire, doesn't understand it. And I think it's important that if you're going through some shit, if you're going through a hard time, that you need to talk to somebody who's in the know, has experience in the fire, um, we're getting a little bit better about creating a network of, uh, you know, mental health networks with people that have fire experience. They can actually relate to a firefighter. And I think it's important that, you know, you're talking to someone who has seen it, done that, been in it, because you can relate to them so much better. Because I guarantee you, if you were to talk to some Joe Blow, like shrink or whatever, you're not going to get any value out of it. You, you just... No. Yeah, they, they don't have a fucking clue what you're talking about. No, and and what that's not doing, you, you you know, you just end up compartmenting that. Or, you know, I, I'm sorry. I think people compartment those things that they explain to someone who doesn't understand because the responses they get are not necessarily negative. You know, it's a really positive thing to talk about people, especially, you know, your partners and your friends when you're having issues but they compartmentalize it because there's some things that they just can't quite say. They don't want to say because they're worried about how it'll affect, you know, affect the relationship. It'll affect the friendship because all of a sudden your perception can be, you know, someone's perception of you can change. And uh, it's a really tricky thing that I struggled with for a long time. You know, one of my old, old girlfriends, um, I, I could never really talk to her about, 
the things that I'd seen, the things that I'd done, the things that I had to do to achieve the goal, um, and do do the best I could for someone, even though there was really nothing I could do for them. And it's really tough to try and explain that to someone who hasn't seen it because they don't have they a frame of reference. Yeah, that's right. There's no frame of reference, but then there's that risk of secondary trauma. So you know, it's it's so much better to talk to someone who has the coping mechanisms to talk to you about them. So, you know, I could call you up and say, Hey, listen, I'm having this. And I know that you've probably seen it. You've been to it. You've, you've found a way to cope with that thing. So me talking to you about it, isn't going to open up a wound for you, nor is it going to create a new one. And that can be really tricky for people and their partners too. And it's just so important that people build those connections early and talk early. And, and I, you know, I really hope that anyone listening to this, if they've got something going on. They, they put their hand up and say, man, I just need a fucking beer. And someone will listen. Oh yeah, it's important. I don't. I, it's weird though because it seems like there's a cultural thing too. Like uh, I don't know how it is with you guys and the way you guys do business because you know I have no frame of reference, of course. But over here, uh, you know, it's it it could be seen as like a sign of weakness. Like you need to like talk with your bros or whatever. And I think there's a big stigma on it, and I think it's very important that we get rid of that fucking stigma because it's bullshit, man. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, my my brigade, uh, I attended a uh, a suicide um, in the last couple of months, and one of the guys on the truck, he hadn't been to a fatality full stop. And a couple of months in, he was doing okay, and then he started sort of slipping off the rails a little bit. And what it came down to was the fact that he saw me and the other guys handling it so totally differently and he couldn't get on that level and he thought that he had to be stoic about it because everyone else was being stoic and that really got under his skin and it, you know it, it really caused him some grief and when he said that to me i was just like man you know it's not a competition there's no stigma you know if you're not having a good time if you're not okay you put your hand up and you say something and we'll do whatever we can to get you through it yeah. For a team, and the job doesn't end until all the members of the team are okay. And if that takes six months, then it takes six months. It takes the rest of our lives, and that's what it is, and that's what you do. You got to help them, man. You got to help out your brothers and sisters out there. That's right. And I mean, this guy is basically my twin. Like, we look the same, we sound the same, we're the same age. Like, we're basically <laughs> the same. Person. So, uh, it was, you know, it was like chalk and cheese in, in the handling of the situation. But he's new. And he hasn't experienced that before. And I've been to more than my fair share. And that's okay because that's how the career develops and that's just how the dice has been rolled to some degree. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it, you've got to have each other's backs and, and I can't stress that enough. Like, it's, it's something so important to me is that everyone's all good and everyone goes home to their families in a better place or an okay place so that it doesn't affect every other part of their life. Because this is... This is voluntary for me, you know. I don't do this for money. I don't do this full time. Although sometimes, you know, in a year I might do a full time sort of loading for it with the amount of hours I spend doing it. But, you know, I'm not getting paid to be here, so I shouldn't be suffering because I do it. Yeah. And not absolutely. that being paid to do something means you should suffer for it either. Like, you know, that's, that's just total shit. No one should suffer for their job. No one should suffer for the community that they, they want to help. And you just got to put your hand up and, and own it and be like, I need a hand. 
Yeah. I mean, we voluntarily signed up for this whole job. So I think it's important that we take ownership in it, but also take into that resp- take that responsibility of, you know, recognizing uh, when we do need help as well. Yeah. And look, it, you know, you don't, and it's, that's the thing, you know, you don't have to go to a critical incident to need that support. It might be that your, your six months is up and you need to have that network to check in on each other and make sure that you're keeping your head above water. Or it might be that you just need to have a family barbecue because you guys become, you know, a family. You're, you're oh, absolutely. So you just got to spend time together. And, um, you know, I, I, I follow a heap of different firefighters from across the states, and I see that you guys have like volleyball competitions and like barbecues before season. And, and like I see that, I'm just like, fuck yeah, get into it, like have a good time. It sounds like a heap of fun. Like smash, you know, smash some beers and, and just be like, be good dudes to each other, so that you've got that for the rest of the season. Oh yeah, man, it's it's really cool. It's that's what I'm super stoked about with. Uh... I don't know, I've seen an exponential rise in community involvement and our community is building. It's getting more recognized around the States and I think that's important because a lot of these guys out here, they're capable or doing, not even, they're more than capable because they are doing amazing shit for our community like hosting those volleyball tournaments or hosting the vertical drop where they just go out and like, go out to the uh, ski resort and they just see how many hot laps they can do up and down the hill in a day. And they raise a bunch of money for the wildland firefighter foundation. And dude, it's cool, man. And they get together and they just, they just hang out. And I think that's important that uh, we keep things like that going. Absolutely. And it's, I think things like this podcast is, you know, I, I spend a long time looking for podcasts about firefighting and, they're far and few between in a in each context. Like, there's a really good technical rescue one, which is great if you're using those techniques, but it doesn't it can't always be applied. But you know, when you've got like wildland firefighting, this this covers so much ground for so many people, and it's really fantastic. To see well, it's so dynamic, you know. I mean, this is I mean, wildland fire, well, firefighters in general, even they're pretty much the jack of all trades. You know, I mean, you know so much in the shit that we do out there is pretty incredible. I mean, it's amazing what we do. Like we, we're not a specialist in anything, but we're not a specialist in anything per se, but we know how to do a lot of shit. And if we can't do that at the particular moment, then we'll figure it the fuck out. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Whichever we get until it breaks sort of thing, we'll we'll get it to work. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Pretty Um, crazy, dude. And then just, just in general, like, I mean, I, I probably go to between 130 and 150 calls a year um, across our, our all risk profile. So, you know, in 12 months, I might go to 18 car accidents and four house fires and, you know, 30 grass fires and a handful of alarms operating. So smoke alarms and shit like that, you know, banal stuff. But sometimes in that whole year, you know, you get one really good job and that makes your whole year and it makes everything worthwhile, all the training, all the, all the time, all the devotion and any of the, the two in the morning pager going off call out where you're just tired, but you know that you've got to do what you signed up for, you know, your duty. And I love it. Like I, I never get sick of this, this sort of stuff. And like, I just love it. I live for it. 
it's but so much fun, dude. What? Yeah, but one of the things that I've had to learn, and it was a really tough thing to learn, is that balance as well. Like, you know, for six months a year, you guys live and breathe fire, and that's what you guys do. But for some of us, you know, including the volunteers who might be listening to this from all over the world and, and all over the place, you know, you can't let fire be the end all of your existence. You know, you've got to be more than just the fire fighter and it can't be an identity. It has to be a part of your identity, but it can't be your whole identity because then, you know, you fall into that trap of there's no fire for six months or there's nothing for six months and who am I now? Yeah, you um, lose that sense of purpose. And yeah, and that, that was a really hard thing for me to learn as a volunteer, um, especially when I was a young younger guy. I'm not old yet, but um, <laughs> you know, I was learning. I, I really hate missing calls when the pager goes off. I really, I feel like I've let my team down. I feel like I've let the community down if I'm not on the truck. And I'm only now and I mean this very genuinely, and in the last couple of months, learning that it's okay to miss a call and it's okay to not be on the truck because if the truck goes out the door with a, with a crew on it, the job's getting attended to. People are getting the help they need, and I'm not a one-man army. And I hope that in the next couple of months, I'll really consolidate that, and all of a sudden I won't feel like I have to get out of bed every morning you know, for every call. I probably still will, but I know it might be that I have to do it because I'm obligated by something I've set on myself as part of my identity. Because the slippery slope of that for me was that if I get really down on myself and I'm having a really tough time with all the other things I've got going on in life, sometimes it feels like all you have is the fire brigade or the fire. And if that's not happening, then you've got nothing. And that's a really, really shit spot to be in. And, you know, I, I'm really working on trying to get away from that. So well, that's a thing, man. health is just a massive part of what we do and we've got to be on top of it. See, that's the thing, man, is like, especially like when you're a young, new firefighter, you fall into this trap and I see it all the time. I've been a victim of it myself, but you always fall into this trap where you let this career define you. And it's like you're saying, dude, not until like I was, you know, eight, 10 years down into the program, I realized the value of, you know, taking a personal day every once in a while or, you know, enjoying your family. You fall into that trap of letting this career define you. Don't do it, man. The fire's going to get no. fought. It's it's going to go out either on its own or somebody else right. is going to respond to it. So That's right. And for every one fire that you're at, I guarantee you there was a thousand that you were. Oh, yeah. So every time my pager goes off and I miss it, every other station in the state has gone to another job in the last six hours. And I wasn't at that job either. So it's not the end of the world. Truck goes on, everything happens, and the world will continue to be what it is. Yeah, the world um, still turns, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. And, you know, you, you said in previous podcasts, you know, um, your partner's super, super understanding of it, but, you know, there's, there's still limits to these things. <laughs> i got a funny story about that. Um, it was Christmas a couple of years back and my partner at the time and I, we traveled up from my parents' place to her grandparents' house with all her family. And um, as we were driving there, I looked at an airport that we were driving past and they had the, the RJ-46 heavy bomber mm -hmm. going out. 
nicknames Boomer, and then they had the Hercules go out as well. Who goes out of And I followed the horizon around back over my shoulder, and I saw the smoke column coming from the Otways, which is where we were, yeah. up in Lawn. And it was coming from a town called Wye River. And from that moment in the day, on Christmas Day, all I was worried about was this fire. That I wasn't at, but could end up at. And I did end up at the fire. But we went to Christmas lunch, and the whole time at Christmas lunch, rather than being with my partner at the time and her family, I was focused on my phone, on the radio feed, on the pager feed, on the news, and getting updates on the situation. And eventually, I got called up to go to that fire, and I, because she had driven us both there, she had to then drive us back to my hometown so I could get my gear, get on the truck and go. And that was our Christmas. But in reality, I wasn't really there and she was really upset with me because I wasn't there. And that's totally fair enough. She was absolutely right. That's totally understandable. And it's only because I've been able to reflect on that now in, in recent years that I've learned that, you know, sometimes you've got to put your friends and family first and their patience is a, is a gift. It's not a guarantee. And one day it'll be too much and it, it will put that strain in them. It's hard on relationships, man. That's for sure. Family, relationships, everything. Your friends. Yeah, you know, it's it's a real thing. Yeah, so you new guys listening, like, don't stuff your misses over. Be honest. You know, spend time with her. She'll thank you for it, and she'll let you go to the next fire. There's always another fire. Oh, yeah. Well, then she gets pissed at you, and then she wants you out of the house. <laughs> go go, go yeah. fight fire. Yeah, I'm right. sick of your shit. It's not all bad. Find the balance, gentlemen. And, and gentle ladies too, you know, you, you have partners who you probably don't quite understand what you do because you kick ass girls who are kicking goals and, um, you know, you just gotta, you gotta have that conversation and be honest with each other about <laughs> what you need and make sure that you're not throwing your relationship under the bus for the sake of something that, you know, you, there's other people who are going to respond if you don't, there's always another person. Oh Yeah. And I hope that in time I get better at it than I am now. But, you know, I'm on the way and, geez, it was a hard process to learn. And I think that's probably one of the few things I can actually sort of talk about to help people learn in this job. Unless you're on the truck with me and I can point things out to you and sort of run you through it, I think that's the, uh, the limit of my experience to some degree. <laughs> Jeez, man. Yeah. No, it's good shit, man. It's, it's important that people... Uh understand this when they're get, especially when they're getting into it or it might be even a gut check for somebody else that's been in it for you know 5 10 20 years or whatever you know because you lose a lot of time absolutely speaking of people who have been in the service for years and years how do you guys manage your fitness program dude oh man so it's pretty much like a shotgun across all the agencies we have like a baseline standard um the hot shots are going to be a little bit more than your engine crews. Uh, your smoke jumpers are going to be kind of the extreme uh, spec on the spectrum there. Uh, they're pack tests. So we do like an arduous firefighter uh, to get your red card, your qualification to go fight fire. The baseline minimum for an engine is three miles with a 45 pound pack on flat ground for, it's gotta be under 45 minutes. Uh, the repellers, I believe that they're doing 90 pounds uh, for three miles, and I think it's 75 minutes. Uh, 
someone out there correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and the smoke jumpers are 110 pounds for three miles under 90 minutes. And that's like the baseline standard. But as far yeah. as like, yeah, sorry. yeah, as far as like fitness programs, it's basically dictated by whoever's in charge of the fitness program at the station or the district level. So it's, okay. it's really yeah. like, it's like I said, man, it's like a shotgun. Just whatever yeah, works. Uh, in in Victoria, there's no at this point in time. There's no requirement for fitness. You when you sign up, you get signed off by your doctor to say yes, this person's fit and healthy, and they probably won't drop on the fire ground from exertion. Um, but there's no base fitness level, so you know any any person can walk in and, and sign up, which is great. Like I, I'm all for for that inclusion and that diversity of all people. It's really important for the service and for our community engagement and getting people on the truck because that's what we're there for. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I'm starting to notice is that, I, you know, I'm not an overwhelmingly fit young boy, but I can run hard for a long time and get the job done. But other people who I'm working with might be significantly older because our crews are mixed, you know, ages. And, they, you know, you can have a seven-year-old guy a 40-year-old guy and two 20-year-olds on the truck. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because, you know, we just don't have these defined fitness programs to sort of make sure that people are at this base level of fitness. And they're coming in at the moment, but it's just always interesting to hear how different services manage the fitness to make sure people are up to scratch. So now, um, quick question, you know, though. Yeah. Quick question. Um, is that just your particular agency or is that just pretty much like every agency? Like, your uh, say, your state employees that uh, are doing that full-time kind of hand crew or uh, rap crew kind of stuff? Do they have baseline fitness programs, or is this just your agency? Uh, This is just my agency for volunteers. So the guys who end up as staff, career firefighters for my agency, um, they undergo a very, very arduous uh, PT regime to even get the job. They have to do quite a serious series of physical aptitude testing um, and they have to maintain it for quite a long time. The guys who work for the state government in different agencies on those contracts, the six and nine months sort of contracts and the full-timers, they have to do packed hikes um, and maintain it for the season and repeatedly. And, and there are guys who have been doing it for 20 or 30 years who run rings around, you know, the 20-year-old straight out of uni who, who comes and signs up to do it. Um, but it's it's a really interesting challenge because we have an aging volunteer population in Victoria. Um, you know, we have 59,000 volunteers, both operationally and non-operationally. And the average age is increasing. You know, young people aren't as engaged in it as, as often. Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, we're really trying to manage at the moment. But the fitness stuff, you know, you don't want to be dragging a hose through the bush with someone who who's going to conk out in an hour and you've got 12 hours to go. Oh yeah. And it's this interesting challenge for the, for the whole thing. And there's lots of challenges facing volunteerism in firefighting. Um, and, and it's just super interesting to hear how different places manage that risk because it is risk at the end of the day. You know, if you're not fit, you increase your risk of stroke and, and cardiovascular issues. And, and people, people die on the fire ground because their heart gives out or, you know, they, they go into respiratory arrests 
because they have asthma and, and they, they aren't managing it. Um, and it's <coughs> something that we have to work harder to avoid. Absolutely, man. Fitness is it's critical. I mean, your life literally could depend on it. And and your life depends on the guy next to you's fitness or the girl oh, yeah. the girl next to you's fitness. If if you're picking up their slack and working harder, then all of a sudden you're going through your energy faster, and they're you're covering their bit, and it, it just it really falls apart super quickly. It's super interesting just to know how different people manage it. Well, it's that crew dynamic, man. As long as everybody you know is pulling their weight, so to speak, or and, and doing the same job. I mean, you guys. I mean, we we do have to rely on each other. It boils down to that at the end of the day. So fitness and uh, your health, it's super important, man. You can't do this job if you're all wadded up, or you know you have some issues going on. You need to address that shit and get it done, like get it taken care of as soon as possible, or else you're not going to make it very far. Or even worse, you could become a liability to somebody else. Absolutely, absolutely. No, super interesting, man. Super interesting. Yeah, it's. I didn't know you guys didn't have like a baseline qual for the volunteer service. But then again, you know, over here with volunteer firefighters, I mean, you get the full spectrum of, you know, what you. It is what it is, basically, with the volunteers. You still have to be red carded, of course, so you have to pass that baseline minimum of the uh 45 pound pack test over three miles which is and i'm gonna say this i might get in a little trouble for this but it's a fucking joke anybody can do that you can all it does is prove that you can walk in a line with 45 pounds of shit on your back that's it that's not scratching miles and miles of line or you know sawyering for for three hours straight and clearing brush to the other side it's it's not that. No, it's definitely not. It's arduous, man. It's hard. It's uh, it's eye-opening, that's for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, and there's no, there's no simple solution to that because volunteerism has to be inclusive. Otherwise, there's no point in having it. And I just, yeah, it's just super intriguing to, to know. Uh, you guys have the helitax there yeah you have the sky crane the big orange ericsson's oh yeah yeah those guys do a lot of work did you hear about christine christine no i'm not familiar yeah yeah so christine is uh nc 173 ac is she's a she's a type e um and uh she ended up taking a really really big drink um at a fire in victoria a couple of months back and oh, she ended up kissing the water, um, and subsequently the airframe was lost. The, the crew luckily escaped uninjured or with very minor injuries, um, but we ended up with a heli tack inside a dam that was filling up from. And it's something that I guess I didn't think about prior to that was that there's a risk that the aircraft that we rely really heavily on because of the terrain and, and also just the limitations of our equipment and, and our operational sort of how we how we move through the fireground. We rely on aircraft to really get in and smash things for us and, and take the edge off. And there's a risk that that's not available and there's a risk to those guys as well. And I think I sometimes forget that. How do you, how do you find that is? So I have this... You know, there's this old adage in fire and this old philosophy, uh, at least over here stateside, 
where if you live by air, you could potentially die by it because we all know that aircraft are, <clears throat> well, they're machines. Machines are that, these are machines that are prone to uh, breakdown or mechanical issues. So we can't rely, we make it a point, and I stress this to all my firefighters too, we make it a point not to rely on air, whether it be aerial supervision, hell attack, um, bucket drops, whatever. We try and make it a point to not rely on that at all. But, you know, we often do. We often, like, oh yeah, there's a helicopter there. Fuck yeah, let's use that thing. But I try and make it a point to not rely on it for your life. If yeah, that makes absolutely. any sense because I've seen helicopter. I've seen a helicopter go down before, and it was it was, well, it was fucking terrifying. Absolutely, it is. <laughs> um, yeah, so super interesting because I I think that aircraft are assets, and if you can get one, you're a lucky lucky duck sort of thing. Because it just if they can knock the head of the fire out while you work along the active active flank, and then come around to the head and sort of mop it up in the grassland. You know, you, you're saving yourself time, energy, effort, and most of all, you're probably saving bushland as well. Oh yeah. Um, and to that to that effect, you know, sometimes we just need to let it burn too, and that's something that I expect in the next years will be: is the fire really going to threaten anything in the next hour, in the next three hours? No, next three days. Well, maybe maybe let it burn and mitigations in place three hours from now so that you've got a plan and that'll that'll maybe part of our fire prevention is letting active fires run their course in the bushland as long as it's reasonable to do so yeah and that's the thing too is we have a pretty robust uh fire use program so we call them fire use fires where we'll if it's like in a wilderness or anything like that or it's you know a low intensity burn we're really good about letting it run its course. At least some forests are at least. Um, but also we have a pretty robust prescribed fire program. And I think that the introduction of fire into the wildland is not only beneficial ecologically, but also it reduces your risk and that risk of uh, your firefighter risk and your risk of catastrophic fire. So I think it's really important that we keep this program going and even make it more uh, robust. I think it's, yeah, it, we need to keep introducing fire into the ecology because now we don't have these 100-year fires or we reduce that potential. Well, that's, that's the thing. If we don't start our fire prevention programs, you know, I, I think I was watching uh, Fire Chasers on Netflix, which... Oh, I'm God, enjoying, dude, don't watch that show. It is a mockery. <laughs> something like 97% of the budget for firefighting is put towards actually combating fires rather than preventing them. Yeah. Some some ridiculous portion of the budget that should go towards prevention is, is being tied up in, in firefighting. Um, and as, as we know, if we can save money and time and energy and effort and risk by letting the fires burn before they ever get to something serious, then we're doing ourselves favors and it, oh, yeah. it's going to be a big mental change for a lot of places, a lot of countries. I think for us, people are scared of fire. They're scared of planned burns getting out of control. And 
And they reasonably and, should and, be, you know, because let's be honest, shit happens. Absolutely. It's, it's not un, unreasonable to be afraid of it, but, you know, at the same time, if we don't burn, then when summer comes knocking, and it will come knocking, it will be worse that it had have happened then than not six months ago when it was winter. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's something that we have to learn to manage in Victoria, I think. And it's coming in slowly and it has always been coming in in some form but there's yeah there's so many complexities to uh to to the issues of an australian firefighter sometimes it's overwhelming (laughs) (laughs) i just want to put fire out i just want to get a rayco and start scratching wine like give me a knapsack and send me in a direction i'll get it done (laughs) i don't worry about things too much that's the thing man these problems are way over my pay grade so but, uh, that's right. I, I mean, I'm not even getting paid, so I probably shouldn't worry about it too much. But it's, you know, it's part of the culture. We have to take care of, of what we do. That's our jobs, um, though. I mean, we're stewards of the land. Yeah. What it boils down to it. For my time and just be like, look, you know, I know I'm a volunteer, but like, at least this way it's sort of. <laughs> yeah. God, man. Well, shit, man. We just covered a lot of topics, man. Uh, this is a good episode, man. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, dude. Thanks very much for having me and, and for, for letting me be a part of this project. It's super exciting and uh, I've really enjoyed hearing all these different people's experiences and, and you know, I'm, I'm learning new things from everyone, that, which just makes me really happy to know that I, that community is expanding and, and these experiences that, that are locked away because you don't know these people, you never meet them. Oh, yeah. Is coming to the forefront and being discussed and, and now being an open open topic. And people can see it and, and we're opening that world. Or you, we, you, are opening that world to people. So thank you for that. Yeah, man, I think it's important that we get our message out there and actually kind of like say what we do, who we are, share our experiences, because when it boils down to it, that's what we are. I mean, no one really knows what we do because we're always behind, you know, a thick canopy of forest doing what we do. So all we have is stories. And that's the whole purpose of this podcast, man, is get our story out there. Cause there's a lot of amazing people that do a lot of amazing shit out there. And I want to share that with everybody. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. So yeah, I'm with you. I understand. Looking forward to it. Hell yeah, man. So it is an ongoing project. Well, shit, man. I mean, we're at the time point for the show. Um, you want to give a shout out to anybody like a mentor or, uh, one of your homies, one of your bros, or anything like that? <laughs> uh, look, I'll just give mad props to, to Lee. Uh, he knows what's going on. He knows what he's about. He's a good dude. And he uh, he's an asset to the community. Um, and to all my mentors and the people that have put up with me to get to this point, you know, much, much props, many thanks. And I hope that I didn't disappoint you too much to get this far. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm better than I was five years ago and I'm better than I was 10 years ago. And I have you, all these people to thank for that. And, and it's really hard to sort of show them that, but I hope they know. Oh yeah, man. That's awesome. So where can we find you on uh, the old social medias? Uh, so the only social media that I actually have is, uh, is pretty much Instagram. So uh, I'm Jack Fry Adventure Guy um, is my uh Instagram name, so people can hit me up there if they have any questions. Uh, I'd love to sort of hear from them, hear from people's experiences, and just sort of have a chat. Um, and if anyone's in Melbourne, Australia, 
and then when I have a beer and a chat, I'm always keen for an adventure. So hit me up. That's uh, that's actually how I know Brandon. Everyone, so yeah. pretty much got up for a beer, and it was from there. Yeah, we had a good time, man. That was that was some fun shit going ziplining, taking my wife and her having her scream during the ziplining experience. Yeah, see, and that's the thing. Like, if you're in Melbourne and there's an opportunity to do some cool shit, I'm definitely down for that. So, um, you know, let me know. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. Well, Jack, dude, thanks for sharing your knowledge. Thanks for sharing your story. And uh, yeah, thanks for giving us a little insight from the other side of the world, man. And uh, absolutely. Absolute pleasure. I'm gonna head to bed and get some sleep now. <laughs> yeah, it's probably what two thirty, three o'clock in the morning over there now. Yeah, it's two thirty. It's not the bed for sure. All right, man. Thanks very much. Right on, dude. See ya. Take care. All right, guys. There you go. Jack Fry Adventure Guy. Hit him up on the socials. That's his uh, Instagram handle. He's a very small part in a very large multi-agency, multi-jurisdictional organization and fire program. But uh, yeah, I look forward to getting some more people from uh, the international community on the show. Talk about how they do business. Jack, I just want to say uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. We covered a lot of topics. That was uh, damn near two hours of just solid audio there. And uh, we covered everything from, well, fuels, topography, weather, mental health, equipment, lingo. Holy shit, man. That was a good episode. Once again, dude, thanks. Appreciate it. Make sure you guys go and check him out. Hit him up if you guys got any questions. And if you ever happen to be in that part of the world, he's always down for a beer. And down for just like random ass adventures. Like uh, when my wife and I were down there, we hit him up and uh, he's basically our tour guide for about a day or two and uh did a bunch of fun little things man we uh went zip lining and all sorts of sh- all sorts of crazy shit it was fun anyways make sure you guys uh smash that subscribe button on itunes hit us up on uh, uh, uh spotify as well and make sure you subscribe there as well also uh follow us on our social medias at the anchor point podcast on instagram twitter facebook all that stuff so that being said Thanks for tuning in. Catch you on the next one. See ya.